What's going on, man? Can you hear me? I can now. Yeah. What's going on, Ian? Not too much, man. How you doing? How's the wife? Hey, man. Just hanging in there. Yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. Getting ready for, uh, you know, the whole running around for Christmas. That whole bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear. I hear you, man. Yeah. Yo, thank you um, for uh, sending uh, your well wishes the other day. Um, you know, with the problem with the wife, uh, she's doing a lot better now. So I, I appreciate you. Guys care, yeah, I appreciate that. <clears throat> no, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Hideaway Holidays episode. Uh, this will be episode 44, I believe. Yeah, James. James is back with us. Uh, the author of well, the co-author or what have you, whatever you want to say, of the Carlo Gambino book. We had him on a few weeks back. And today he's here to talk to us about uh, a rather less known uh, Sicilian mob boss. So, I mean, James, if you want to you start in. Yeah, no no problem. Um, yeah, I think we're talking about Bernardo Provenzano today, I believe. Um, yep. And, um, yeah, he was just uh, an old school Sicilian mob boss. Um from Sicily, um, actually from Corleone, Sicily. Uh, and we all know that Mario Puzzo made uh, uh, Corleone famous uh, with the godfather, um, Vito Corleone, in Mario Puzzo's movies and books were, uh, was based off of, um, you know, a couple of Sicilian mobsters back in the, the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, some modern American sounds like uh Frank Costello, which a uh, big yeah, shout out to Casey McBride yet again, Uncle Frank's place. Big shout out to them, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yep, uh, I think Frank Costello. A lot of people thought that actually Carlo Gambino was uh the instant for Vito Corleone, but like you mentioned, it, it was actually um Frank Costello, uh, was actually the inspiration for uh, Vito uh, back when Mar- Mario Puzo published his book. But um, yeah, uh, Bernardo, um, he was born in 1933. Um, he was part of the Corleonesi faction. And um, they, in Sicily, there were two major factions. Uh, you had the, the mobsters from Palermo, Sicily. And then, you know, you had the mobsters from Corleone and uh, the Palermo sort of like mob- a divide. There's sort of like uh, like kind of an unspoken divide between the two of them. Well, yeah, in a way, because um, Palermo, you know, that's kind of like known as like the capital of Sicily. And so people, you know, the mobsters there kind of had like uh, a higher position uh, kind of sort of when it came to organized crime in on on the island of sicily and then everyone else was kind of like second place um but the corleones the corleonesis um which is the faction that bernardo provenzano uh came from they they really started make making a name for themselves uh in the 60s uh 70s uh 80s and 90s um so and they made a name for themselves with their violence um, they uh, who uh, were they associated with any like uh, Amer- like modern American mob families? I mean, I'm sure they were, but like, if so, do you know who? Yeah, sure. Um, th- they ended up more towards the 70s and the 80s. 
uh, the, the boss was a, a guy by the name of um, Salvatore uh, Toto Rina, and he uh, was basically at the helm of the um, the drug trade, um, the French Connection, uh, like in that that era. Uh, Rina was the one in charge at that point, and so he 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 helped uh, facilitate the um, the shipments that came into the u.s um so guys like and people like that through the french connection literally yeah like practically all the five families to be honest with you um right right absolutely carlo gambino and the gambino family definitely were they played a major role because carlo uh, obviously is is from sicily and still had major connections to the island and so you had the um the Cherry Hill Gambinos uh, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, who actually like, you know, they they brought in a lot of drugs um, back in the 70s and early 80s. And so they're more um, or less just like Carlo's uh, family, weren't they like actual family? They were literally Carlo's cousins. Yeah. For sure. I thought you were telling me about that last time you were on here. And so he, yeah, he was the supply line for these guys, huh? Say, say that again. I said, so he was a main supply line for guys like Gambino and Galante and all sure. them. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Um, Galante, obviously, you know, I'm sure uh, listeners of your podcast and, and organized crime fans know that Galante brought in a lot of, of drugs in, in during his tenure. Um, oh, yeah. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah, and Re- Rena and, and those guys over in Corleone. And and some of the guys in Palermo as well were, were responsible for um, you know facilitating all of that. How did he, but, um, how did he end up uh, sort of uh, taking control of the throne? Uh, Bernardo Provenzano. Um, well, initially the first mob, the the first noted and reputed mob boss of the Sicilian Corleonesi faction um, was. Uh, a guy by the name of Luciano uh, Leggio and um, Salvatore Rina and Bernardo Provenzano were his underbosses. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, Leggio um, took over in, I believe, the 60s, and um, uh, Provenzano. Uh, who initially started his career as, as a hitman um, exclusively. Uh, so he's probably, he probably has easily over 35, 40 bodies uh, um, on, on his Good. resume. Um, yeah. I mean, the guy, the guy, he, 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 I mean, he killed for a living. The first part of his career was literally just, um, strictly, it was strictly yes, yeah, strictly just killing, killing guys. Um, that that was that was literally his 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 job. Um, his nickname is the Tractor because people said that you know he just he mowed people down. Um, and and that's literally all he was known for in the beginning of his career. So Provenzano came up under Leggio in the sixties, and then. Um, when Leggio went to jail uh, for murder, um, because back then the Corleonesi, the Corleonesi were targeting um, uh, judges, um, cops. It didn't matter. If you went against 
Cosa Nostra in Corleone, Sicily, or Palermo, because uh, the Palermo dudes, the Palermo bosses, uh, they were afraid to hit some of these uh, upper echelon politicians and stuff. So they would actually subcontract the work to the Corleone guys. And so Bernardo Provenzano was like, you know, the lead headhunter. And, you know, he would lead, lead the operations. Like when it came to taking down major political figures, car bombs, house bombs. He, the, that's how his brain worked. You know, he was right. literally Gen- just... Genuine assassinations more so than just like your everyday two-bit hits. Correct. Exactly. And so he excelled at, at those kind of um, assassinations. Um, and uh, that's how he rose up the ranks. Kind of like the Chapo Guzman of the Sicilian Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> basically. Basically. Yeah. He, I mean, and, that's and, pretty incredible for a guy's main, like, just their main import-export to be the art of murder. You know, I mean, normally they're involved in... No, I mean, they're all usually involved in murder, especially coming from over there. But normally they got some sort of other vice that's, like, their main primary, like, thing they're known right. for. But this guy was just strictly known as a shooter, huh? Yeah, definitely. And... and, and... In Sicily, up until the 60s and 70s, you really didn't have, like, outside of just um, pretty much um, imposing taxes on uh, legitimate and illegitimate industries, you really didn't have any other criminal industry operating uh, at that point in time. I mean, these these people, they were very poor. They were farmers. Um, they were mostly uh, in, in landholders. Uh, right, so right. the rackets there, uh, pre-1960, 1970, before drugs became um, an important criminal industry, um, you, you know, they, that's all they did. They were, you know, they control certain territories and they would kill each other if, they, you know, imposed on one another's territories. It wasn't until the yeah, late 60s and 70s. Like, they're really mainly talking about, like, when you get the old idea in your head of, like, two families really combating for turf and territory, you're really thinking more in the Sicilian or, like, actual, like, old-school methods of the mob. Because, like, the American mob, whenever you hear about a mob war, it's normally, like, internal. It's normally a family battling within itself over a couple of crews or two separate crews or who's going to be boss or like, it's very rarely is it like the Godfather where like everybody goes to the mattresses, all that. It's like the Casamilarity Wars were probably like the last real mob war that the U S soil seen really. I mean, <clears throat> not real as in like people dying, like people died in all of them, but like the Colombo wars, that's two factions of the Colombo family. You know, you got right. the Gotti and Castellano bit. That's, you know, that was an internal complex within the family. So like, yeah, it is. But like Sicily, they've, I mean, from what I know, they've never stopped warring with each other. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think uh, in America, most uh, gang, gang, gangland murders were as a result of internal family warfare, um, civil war within certain um, sects and families. Uh, whereas in Sicily, um, you know, murder came by way of wholesale. I mean, these guys were just murdering each other left and right. Um, and, and like you said, the bosses would go to the mattresses. I mean, they were, they were there right there along with the soldiers, like squeezing, squeezing glocks and like, you know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and 
you know, like, so they were a part of that actual, um, and they, yeah, actually, down and turn, yeah, yeah, they would turn their, yeah, their compound into fortresses, and yeah, yeah, they did. They took right. a lot of pride in it. They took pride in that. Um, but what, now, what said he, Bernard? Did up, yeah, did he ever end up over here as a shooter? Uh, cause I know with Galante and all of them, there's plenty of times where they'd bring in the zips, you know, where that when yeah. they referred to them, like, was he ever, was he ever on that roster or was he not part of that? No, he. I don't think. Uh, well, I know that for a fact that Provenzano never came here or traveled to America as as a zip or um, any other kind of like function. He stayed in Sicily for the most part, and when uh, Luciano Leggio went to jail and was incarcerated, and Todorina took over, Bernardo Provenzano became um, Rina's underboss, and the reason I like or I, I'm fascinated by Provenzano's story is because it mirrors my favorite um, Italian-American mobster, Carlo Gambino's story in many ways. Um, you know, early on, Provenzano was a hitman in Sicily and no one pretty much gave any thought to his other gifts. Um, he would end up becoming uh, one of the most intelligent and in um, an industrial um, mafioso mafiosos in Cosa Nostra history, uh, because uh, when the '80s and '90s rolled around, he literally shifted the entire um, Corleonesi's uh, uh, goal. I mean, before it was just they were hired hitmen for the Palermo um, faction. Uh, after Provenzano took over, uh, they became a legitimate business uh, um, operation. Pretty much, they took over all of the the drugs that were uh, that were being shipped out of Sicily uh, to America. They um, took over all of the public contracts, uh, the building contracts of Sicily in the eighty in the late eighties and in the ninety and early nineties was going through a, a building boom, a real estate boom, and they took over that industry. Um, and uh, it's just and just like Carlo, who uh, you know bided his time before he actually became boss of his own family, taking out uh, Albert Anastasia. And, you know, kind of putting an end to the violence and concentrating a little bit more on the corporate side of organized crime and building that part of the family um, up. Uh, Provenzano did the same thing in, in Sicily, whereas before he took over, it was just all about violence and all about killing and, and you know, and, and stuff like that. After his uh, after he assumed, uh, you know, the throne. It, it became about business. There were few killings. Um, he actually had an agreement with the government. He was like, hey, listen, we're going to stop killing you guys and we're going to focus on business. Um, and with that mindset, um, the politicians kind of took their foot off the gas pedal and they left Cosa Nostra alone. And during that period of time between I would say 1979, 1980 to as, as recently as 2014, huh. um, you know, Cosa Nostra was left alone to its own devices pretty much. And they were able to rebuild um, after Provenzano took over. Is he now, is he still alive? 
No, he died in 2016. Uh, he was 80, 83 years old. Yeah. He died. No, did he uh, die at natural causes? Uh, he died in jail. So he was uh, apprehended in 2000. And um, I want to say, I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, he was arrested because he was on the run um, for a long time. Uh, th- th- the authorities were looking for him and he literally went on the run and this man was like living in caves like in sicily and uh he was living a a bare existence which actually he didn't mind uh he was he didn't require much um if if you gave provenzano a cot um some water some bread um some anchovies he, he could live off of that for a long time and still found a way to run like a billion dollar a year um, kind of like corporation. And so he was out on the run for a very, very long time between 1960 until he was captured, I think, in 2014 or 15. I mean, I mean um, that makes sense. And so the hammer started to come yeah. down a lot of guys. Yeah, yeah. That's, so that uh, yeah, he was a really low key guy like that. It does go. It does go to show what a lack of vanity can do in something like organized crime. But because because he didn't require much, he was able to still thrive and still function like the sort of I guess the legacy of his family or the legacy of his Borgata more so than the legacy of himself. I mean, that takes a rare person, especially somebody who makes the level of boss. You know, it takes a rare. That's a rare breed. For sure. For sure. And um. He was also very smart in that he hid his talents well at the start of his career. And so when Leggio was in charge and Toto Rina was in charge, they assumed Provenzano was a hitman and only capable of killing people. Right. They they weren't aware of his um, business acumen. And he hid that well from them. And he actually set up Todorina to get caught almost in the same way many people say Gambino set up Vito Genovese to get, you know, to get caught. Um, And when Genovese ended up getting incarcerated uh, for that 15 year stretch where he ended up dying in prison and Gambino took over the commission. Yeah. And that in in the same way, Provenzano kind of colluded, I guess you... I hate using this word, but maybe it's, you could call it dry snitching, kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, that's more, that's more or less what it is. You're just like, hey, I'm not saying he's going to be there, but I'm saying not saying he's not not going to be. I don't know. I heard exactly. from a friend. I'm going to leave this right here on the table. I get what you're saying. It, exactly. And that's what Provenzano did to Rena. And when Rena went away, um, and Rena didn't, was a, an extremely violent mob boss. Rena was the equivalent of Albert Anastasia uh, in Sicily. Okay. Provenzano was pr- kind of like the equivalent of Carlo Gambino here here in, in the Italian American mob. Okay. And so when they put, or yeah, right. So when they put Rena away, when Provenzano put Rena away, um, Provenzano, you know, gathered all of the mob bosses, both in Corleone and in um, Palermo. And he said, listen, um, we've got to change the way we, you know, we, the way we're acting here. Um, killing public officials is no longer good for the mob because it infuriates not only the authorities, but the public. And yeah. 
we yeah and we we depend on the public um you know to survive um at that point in time Provenzano was already on the run so he was moving from house to house the people in the public were helping him facilitating um him and you know um sheltering him uh from time to time and so he depended on their patronage and so he needed their help and so um you know killing innocent people killing public officials you know that just you know that that kind of style of doing business just wasn't you know it wasn't right for the times and and Provenzano helped them you know switch over to a more business and corporate kind of um arrangement now his uh does the family still hold his name? Or I know Sicily isn't as uptight with that, really. It seems like the the, the Borgata name sort of changed as a leader takes over. Yeah, in Sicily, um, the funny thing about Sicily is that, you know how in America, you know, we'll have the Gambino family, we'll have the Bonanno family, the Genovese family. In America, usually whoever is at the helm or whoever's uh yeah. in charge of the family yeah. they'll be the family's namesake in sicily it doesn't really work that way um they identify their factions um mostly by where the faction is located okay. so in sicily la cosa nostra in um in in corleone is is just called the corleonesi the corleonesi gang the corleonesi faction um yeah, so it's not like the Provenzano family okay. or okay. the Totorina family. Yeah, so that makes sense. Well, no, man, it sounds yeah. like. I mean, when you when you said you had a a Sicilian mob boss you want to talk about, I mean, with how much you knew about Carlo Gambino, I mean, I just I had to have you back. You know what I mean? You're a you're definitely <laughs> a wealth of knowledge, man. You do you do your research. You do it very well and very thoroughly. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, we all like organized crime and we we all enjoy um you know uh, the stories about these mobsters and what have you um but what i like to remind people i like i like to tell people that you know like that for these guys it's kind of like a way of life um to them it's not to them they're not doing anything wrong yeah they don't they don't when you yeah right when you when you trace the lineage, the mob's lineage back to Sicily, um, you know, back in the 1200s, um, you know, in the 12th century, like they formed the mafia um, in order to protect each other from foreign rule, um, because the island of Sicily was constantly getting raided and invaded by uh, foreign foreign um armies uh yeah Spain, it's kind of it's um, kind of like original australia too they would just send a bunch of like castaways there and like yeah right right and so they needed sicily needed some kind of secret society um as the story goes back in uh, i believe it was like the early 14th century um the french invaded sicily and then they started literally um taking over all of the people's lands, repatriating all of, all of their resources, raping their women, killing the, 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 um, the males and the families. Um, and so these Sicilians developed this kind of like, you know, hatred towards any kind of um, 
government authority because they, yeah. they knew that they couldn't trust these, these authorities. And so they banded together and they formed um, La Mafia or La Cosa Nostra. Um, and in the beginning, it was really, and I believe that Carlo Gambino and people like Bernardo Provenzano, these guys, they embodied what La Cosa Nostra meant originally. Um, you know, when Carlo Gambino was alive, he was the most approachable mob boss yes. uh, in the nation. Like if you were like an old lady in little Italy in Manhattan, you can walk up to him and ask him for a favor and he would grant it if it was in his power, within his power to do so. And, and that mindset, um, you, you can trace that back to, you know, way back to the 14th, early 14th century when La Cosa Nostra was created, um, where like these, you know, it was a group of people, a group of guys that came together, they formed this kind of committee, this, this, this governmental body uh, that was, you know, designed to protect their own and help their own um, as much as possible. No, absolutely. It's, uh, it, I mean, it eventually became Americanized like anything else, but I do think it started with, uh, semi uh commendable like intentions um and i even think yep. I, I even think when luciano formed it into the commission he i mean he had a better outlook on it than most people were most people if you wanted like sheer unadulterated racism and hate for other cultures just strictly based on the bias it would have been in the yep. like would have been an organized crime but lucky luciano seen past that he's seen hey like we're all scumbags we all bleed red and we're all chasing green why not at least yes. make money together you know correct Correct. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's exactly. Um, that's true. And and I. I mean, unfortunately, uh, over the years, uh, you know, the, the whole fabric of La Cosa Nostra disintegrated and fell apart um, as a result of you know the snitching and and the government also uh, created like Rico. Uh, they created uh, certain legal. Um, you know, oh, they created all- legal weapons. Yeah, they always find ways to keep people down, you know. They they had Rico, and then if you want to go with uh, them combating the the street gangs in South Central during the crack epidemic, you got the hundred to one law. You got the, I mean, sorts of laws. Every time they every time they get backed into a corner with certain groups or certain uh, anybody making a little more money than them or or being a uh, menace to society, as they put it, they seem to have nothing but time and money to come up with ways to really shut that down. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I think with um, with the onset of Rico, which um, basically came around the, the same time that the drug epidemic in America really started taking off, you know, they were able to um, give you these long sentences for dealing drugs. And, and that really, I think, became the undoing of the mob here in the U.S., as well as in 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 Sicily, um, yeah. like we said, uh, the Sicilian factions were w- responsible for importing the drugs into America, and um, you know they started the authorities started to you know clamp down on the mob here as well as back in Italy, and and you know eventually um, you know that ended up being the mob's demise. American greed always seems to outweigh the lifestyles and guidelines that any kind of outlaws have ever made. Too, it seems like. It all starts going from all the way from the gunslingers in like the Western days all the way to modern day criminals. Like 
eventually the American greed and the need for like more and more and more just always seems to take over the majority of people. I mean, that's why you have your Carlo Gambinos and your, your guys who get it right. I mean, your average bear, I mean, your average bear, they're going to get greedy. They're going to, I mean. Yeah. I mean, eventually. And it is just, I mean, greed is just the American way kind of sort of. Yes, absolutely. And it's good. In, 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 in a certain sense because it keeps you you know it, it fuels ambition um, and and you know stuff like that but it's the bad part about greed is that um, it kind of blinds you um, yeah and, and then that like Bezos become trillionaires during a pandemic you know little things like that <laughs> right right well, nothing too right, crazy but, though nothing we can't sleep with right <laughs> right James, but, um, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a pleasure to have you on here. But I'm gonna have to wrap this up. I got I got future engagements I have to get entangled with. But no I wanted you to be able to come on. I wanted to figure out if your wife was doing okay. I'm glad to hear she's doing good. Um, is there any shout outs you want to give? If uh, if not, plug your book and uh, we'll get out of here. Yeah, listen. Um, shout outs to you guys, obviously. Um, um, for having me on. Uh, and um definitely go out and um get your copy of uh don carlo boss of bosses um is doing really well right now so i appreciate the support and uh please uh everybody leave reviews on amazon uh that helps us a lot and uh yeah we'll 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 keep plugging away um oh, yeah. i have a couple of other book projects uh coming out um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll keep providing whatever we can for the fans out there with regards to, you know, this, this mob stuff that we, you know, we, we hold dear. Well, absolutely, man. It's always good to have you. Uh, shout out, of course, to America Social Club, David Braxford and Rob Lowe Jr., my co-host, Sierra DiPaggio, the Mob King, Arthur and Clothing Apparel, all the guys in the groups, Casey McBride and Uncle, uh, Uncle Frank's Place. Another shout out to those. Very special shout out to those guys. Uh, shout out to you, James, and a very Merry Christmas to you and yours. Thank you, sir. Same to you. And uh, you guys have a you guys have a good Christmas tomorrow. I will definitely be off the air come tomorrow, but we'll we'll all get together and do a, a New Year's episode. Maybe we'll call it the end of the fucking world. Who knows? <laughs> I like it. All right, brother. Thank Take you. Take it for easy. Me. No problem. Thank